Well, good morning. I hope you're doing well. I hope you had a great holiday time and you are excited maybe for another couple of days off and then back to the normal, right? Back to how everything goes normally for you. I want to congratulate you. You did it. You made it all the way through to the end of 2023. Way to go. You should be happy about that. I'm sure you faced some challenging moments this last year. I'm sure that you saw some incredible things take place over the last year, but in the end, you are here on the last day of the year to worship the Lord. And it's awesome to be together with you, and I hope that you are looking forward to a time in God's Word today. This is our last sermon of the year on this last day of the year. If you're like anything like most of the folks, you've probably spent some time over the last few weeks or days reflecting on 2023 and thinking about the things that you would like to see changed in the year 2024. Most folks reflect on the previous year. They make some kind of reactionary goal for the next year. You know what I'm talking about? Some sort of reactionary goal. For instance, maybe if you're fans of a certain basketball team, it's to make it to the second round, okay? Or whatever it is like. But you you have some sort of reactionary goal. Maybe you drink too much soda, so next year I will only drink water. Or you ate too much fast food, so next year we're going to cook dinner at home every single day of the year. Or you watch too much TV, so you made a goal to read 100 books in the next year. Bad grades? Get good grades, right? That's what we tend to do. In fact, according to Forbes magazine, here are the most common New Year's resolutions made by folks this year. You'll notice them, and you probably have recognized some of them as goals maybe you've held in your life, and you might even be sitting there looking at me thinking of some that I should apply. But here they are. 48% of folks say they put improving their fitness on their goal for this next year. In fact, the reality is if you go to a fitness club on Tuesday, when they open up on Tuesday, you will probably have a hard time finding a piece of equipment that you can use within that fitness center. They'll be running two people deep on a treadmill just to make it work. Or improving your finances. Who doesn't want to improve their finances, right? Have you been grocery shopping lately? I think all of us have a goal to improve our finances so we can continue doing that. Improving your mental health or losing weight or improving your diet or making time for loved ones or to stop smoking or learning a new skill or making a time for hobbies or improving your work-life balance. And there's certainly nothing wrong with these goals, right? We, we think that you should be desiring to make improvements in your life where you can make improvements in your life. Now, I want to point out that all of these resolutions that we're pointing out is not ultimately to poke fun at them, but I want to show you a common note about these particular resolutions. They're generally reactive in nature, right? Generally reactive. Many times they are in an attempt to make you more attractive or seemingly more amazing. So a lot of times they're kind of self-serving. Rarely are they carried through, right? It's a joke for a reason that people talk about the fact that your New Year's resolutions don't usually make it all the way through the year. In fact, often they require a level of dedication that you lacked last year and for the most part will probably have lost by February anyways, right? Like that's how it tends to work. Now, I think it's important to make goals for yourself or for your family. 
As a staff here at the church, we make a list of initiatives that we believe God would want our church to seek to carry out throughout that year. And then as individuals on the staff, we make a list of initiatives that we believe God wants us as individuals to carry out within our work to help advance the purpose of the church. As a man, I make a list of initiatives that I want to carry out through the next year so as to not waste the next year of my life. And as a dad, I make a list of initiatives that I want to see happen in our family over the next year. So we certainly are all for planning and we certainly all are all for making goals. But the issue we're looking to address here today is not to say that planning and having goals is bad. However, it is to point us to the purpose of helping us take on the new year with the resolve to handle whatever life might throw at us in a way that God would want us to handle it, right? We want to ultimately be people of integrity. So today we're going to take a look at a picture of God's servant for 2024. And we're going to be looking for four truths for the servant of God pursuing integrity in 2024. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 15? That's page 397 of the front section of the Bible in front of you. Psalm 15. Let me read this psalm for us this morning. Starting in verse 1, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. This passage starts with a pretty big question. Who can abide in your tent or who can dwell in your holy hill? And I realize that today as you're sitting here and you read that verse, you may completely miss the significance of that question. There was obviously an Old Testament context to this question in the sense that God was physically and gloriously present in the tabernacle and later in the temple in a way that he is not currently present today. So when we go to worship God on Sunday morning, we don't go before a room to worship him knowing that he's in the room either behind a closed door or behind a veiled curtain. And while today we do not necessarily need to think about what kind of person can go to the tabernacle or go to the temple, there's a bigger question that's being asked here. What kind of person does God allow in his presence? Why do we need to think about that question? Because we all desire to physically be in his presence someday. The rest of this chapter is spent answering that question for us. Verse 2 tells us what that person must possess. It's a person of integrity. Someone who outwardly works righteously and inwardly is a truthful person. A good way to think of integrity is by thinking of an individual who is both consistently righteous on the outside as well as on the inside. It's the idea of being a whole person or a complete person in the sense that the entirety of the individual is defined by righteousness and a desire to do what is righteous. So the answer to our question this morning, who can dwell with God, is answered in verse 2. And then the answer is that the person must be a person of integrity. 
Then in verses 3 and 5, it begins to describe what a person of integrity looks like. There's eight descriptive lines that follow verse 2 that help us get a picture of what that kind of person is. The descriptions are not exhaustive, but they give an illustration of a blameless person. Now, I want you to understand this as we look through these things today. These descriptions are to be read as descriptions. They're not commands. The concepts are built upon other areas in Scripture that, where the command is prescribed for you, but here they are simply given as a picture. And you have to ask yourself why. Here's why. Because the psalmist often does this. Instead of just commanding us to do something, the psalms have this purpose of causing the reader to reflect and to consider and to examine themselves. The descriptions cause us to ponder and to consider whether we're the kind of person that's being described or we're not. It causes us to think, what are the areas where we aren't acting very godly and how do we need to change in order to get to that place? This is not a list of things to do in order to be saved. The scripture teaches us from the beginning that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, right? These descriptors, however, will help us to evaluate our direction and the condition of our current life. So let's spend some time this morning thinking through these four truths. Here's the first truth that we must understand today. First of all, our God is a God of integrity. Our God is a God of integrity. Now, if we're going to spend an entire sermon talking about integrity, I think it would be helpful for us to define integrity. Here's the definition of integrity. Integrity is to be perfect, without fault, or free of blemish. All right? We're to be desiring to be like this. Now, if we're going to talk about integrity and we're going to look for the perfect illustration of integrity, who do you think from the Bible is the perfect illustration of integrity? Well, it's God himself. This is the one where the Sunday school answer is right. Who better to define integrity than God himself? And so we need to spend some time unpacking this perfect example of integrity as we begin to think through these verses. The question in verse 1 automatically assumes the author's recognition of the superiority of the integrity of God as found through the description of being in God's presence. Look at verse 1 again real quick in Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? Now, obviously, this passage is talking about something, a hill somewhere and a tent somewhere. What specifically is it talking about? Well, it's talking about this pilgrimage that they would have taken to Mount Zion or God's holy hill. Here's an explanation from a commentary. The complementary usage of sanctuary and your holy hill suggests the background of a pilgrimage to Mount Zion, God's holy hill. There David had first placed the tent for the Ark of the Covenants. On that site, the tent was later replaced by the magnificent Temple of Solomon. The word tent is a technical term for the tabernacle of God among Israel. In other words, from the psalmist's perspective, who will be best suited to be in the presence of God at the tabernacle or the temple of God's holy hill? And what makes this hill holy in their mind to begin with? Well, it's the dwelling place for God, and we know this. God is characterized by holiness. God is characterized by holiness. 
The idea of holiness surrounds the idea of being completely set apart for something greater. In other words, God is so different from creation that he is set apart to be in a state of perfection. This perfection is something that's overwhelming for us to even consider. God has never been influenced by sinful thinking. God will never be influenced by sinful thinking. And God is not capable of sinful thinking because he is holy and completely set apart. He is fully blameless. If we could ever see the holiness of God, it would overwhelm us with the thoughts of his splendor. Have you ever tried to think of what God's holiness must be like? Have you ever considered it? I want to show you an incredibly powerful passage that shows this and draws out this idea for us. We're going to look at Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. And I want you to do something. This is something I enjoy doing in passages of Scripture like this. I'm going to encourage you to doodle on the side of your notes what you think the picture would have looked like from Isaiah's perspective as he describes it here. Okay, Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to stop at different points to try to explain some of these things so that they make a little bit more sense for us as we understand it. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now we'll just stop there for a second. King Uzziah had been a good king in Judah. He had reigned for 52 years. King Uzziah had just died, and so now there was going to be a transition in leadership, which would have obviously led the nation of Israel, that would have left them with this new reality of a new leader coming, which would have probably led them to be nervous and maybe a bit anxious about what they could expect from a new ruler. And Isaiah gets a glimpse into what is going on in heaven. The nation is concerned because their king has died and now a new king will be in place. But God is so powerful. Do you notice the the positioning of God in this particular passage? He's seated on his throne. He's not up nervously pacing around. Maybe that's a good reminder for us heading into an election year. God is so in control that at this point in time, while everybody else is nervous, he is seated on his throne. And then it says that the train of his robe is filling the temple. The train of his robe is filling the temple. The the train would be that bit of garment that drags on the floor as you walk. And depending on your importance or your level of royalty, your train would have been longer and longer and longer. And so the Lord's train is so large that it is filling the entire room. Now just hold on to that picture for a minute and let's continue reading. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim are a special group of angels that we see in the role of proclaiming the holiness of God throughout the Bible. So when you see them, they're proclaiming the holiness of God. They have six wings, two covering his face, two covering his feet, and two for flying. So now the picture just became another level of amazing. Now you have the Lord seated on his throne. You have his train all throughout the room. And now you have these angels with six wings who are flying around. And what are they doing? They're calling out to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's an entire chamber full of nothing but the recognition of the holiness of God. Q. 
Can you imagine the sound of those angels in that room that's already overwhelming in its presentation of the greatness of God? Here they are singing it out. Can you imagine the passionate sounds of those angels in the presence of a holy God doing nothing other than proclaiming the holiness of God? I imagine the sound was beautiful. And I also believe the sound was loud because verse 4 says, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So not only do we have the Lord seated on his throne with his train running throughout the entire room, not only do we have these seraphim flying around singing the holiness of God, but it is so loud the the foundations of the thresholds are trembling at the voice of him and the temple is beginning to fill up with smoke. It's louder than Mackey Arena in there. Like it is loud and it's all about one thing, God's holiness. Think about the scene. Imagine the sounds. Imagine yourself in that room as it fills with smoke and you are confronted with the holiness of God. What would be your response? Look at verse 5. Oh, sorry. Look at verse 5. Maybe. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, the has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. What happens in this passage? Isaiah's given a tiny glimpse of the holiness of God, and he's completely overwhelmed. He can't help but reflect on the fact that he is nowhere close to the holiness of God. He can't help but recognize that in comparison with God's holiness, his personal depravity is exposed. And sometimes in the midst of a group of sinners, we try to hide behind the mask of being a little bit less depraved than the person who sits next to us. But in contrast with the holiness of God, then every single bit of our sinful thoughts, our desires, and our actions are on full display. And I want to say this to you, church family, to be a person of integrity, we need to make sure that we are not finding comfort and comparing our lives with those around us, trying to cover the reality that in the presence of God, we are a wicked wretch. I fear too often that instead of trying to be holy like he who has called you is holy, we strive to be more holy than the person to our right or to our left, or we strive to be a bit more holy than those who completely reject God, and we consider it enough effort then that we've put into trying to be holy because we're not quite as bad as the rest of the world. Here's the thing we must remember. God is holy. And he requires his people to be like him. He requires his people to be like him. Who may dwell on your holy hill? The psalmist's question seems at first to be about who can go on this pilgrimage, but it doesn't take long to realize that the context is pointing to something far deeper than just a tabernacle or a mountain. Consider John 4 for a second, the story of the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman. Normally, Jewish folks would have avoided conversations with Samaritans, but Jesus had struck up a conversation with her, and we know he ends up showing her all of her sins and ultimately pointing her village to the salvation that Christ would offer. 
And in the middle of their conversation, she brings up a question that was a common argument between the Samaritans and the Jews. She asked this question, which location is the proper place to worship God? Should we worship God at Mount Gerizim or should we worship God in Jerusalem? And I want you to notice Jesus's response here. John 4, 23 and 24. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying to her. Stop worrying about the location. Instead, worry about your preparation to worship God. The place is not the most important thing. Your heart is. Friend, let me say this to you today. We're so glad you've decided to join us here at Faith Church today. I believe Faith Church is a great place to learn the truths of God's Word. I believe that Faith Church is a great place to build relationships with others who will help you as you apply those truths of God's Word. I believe that it's necessary for a believer to be invested in a local church because God has called us to do this. However, I believe that far more important in your life than making sure you walk through the doors of our church building is making sure that you're becoming more and more like Christ each and every day. Don't just clean up for the pilgrimage to Faith Church every Sunday. Instead, pursue the holiness of God in your life. Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Here's the understanding that the student of the Pentateuch would have understood, and certainly a student of the New Testament should understand this idea as well. It's not enough to recognize that God is holy and we are not. This realization should lead us to conviction. This conviction should lead us to salvation. Salvation should lead us to justification. Justification should lead us to sanctification. And sanctification leads us to strive to live like God. So what do we do? We seek to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Not to earn his favor, but because despite our failure, he chose to show his favor to us and offered his son to redeem us. Friends, listen, if you want to be a person of integrity, you have to recognize the integrity of the one you are called to be like, and that is God himself. Next, we need to think about this. Our integrity is a mark of the whole person. A mark of the whole person. Psalm 15, verse 2 says this. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. That's the person who gets to go to the holy hill. That's the person who gets to enter the temple of the Lord. That's the one who gets to be in the presence of God. So how do you do that? You walk with integrity, do righteous work, and speak the truth in your hearts. I want you to consider this thought for a moment. The blameless walk is the manner of life characterized by integrity. The word signifies a moral way of life. It's not synonymous with perfect, but with an attitude of the heart, desirous of pleasing God. Noah was such a man as was Abraham. The walk of integrity was required both before the flood and before the law was revealed at Sinai. And regardless of what God requires, the blameless man does God's will on earth. So what are some of the things 
that point towards a person being a person of integrity. All right? Let's start by seeing the things that points to a person's integrity. First of all, our works. Our works. James 1, verse 22 says this, Prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You see, it's possible for a person to demonstrate some high standard of integrity through their life, but then in the end it is revealed that it's nothing more than a show. That's why our our works can show people where our heart is, but in the end we will be judged ultimately by the integrity of our hearts. Have you ever gone to a store to pick out the perfect watermelon? You ever done that before? Probably not this time of year, but maybe you have, right? You go to the store, you look for the perfect watermelon. You look for all of the indicators of the watermelon that is going to be perfectly juicy and sweet on the inside. For most of us, the best indicator is a sign that says delicious, juicy watermelons, $4.99, okay? But for a few of you, you might have some tricks that you know to discover which one is that delicious watermelon. So maybe you pick it up and you shake it while listening for a sloshing sound inside, okay? Like maybe that's your technique, or maybe you smell it as if you're the most incredible melon tracker in the world, Or maybe you've learned to flick it, listening for that perfect hollow but not too hollow sound that will echo through the inside of it. And then you drive home thinking about the juice from this delicious watermelon running down your arm, only to cut it open and find it about as moist as a chicken breast in the hands of an amateur cook or a swab of cotton packed in your mouth at the dentist office. It looked great. It sounded great. It smelled great. But in the end, it wasn't that great. Your works should be an indicator of your hearts. But if your works are never demonstrating integrity, then it would be safe to assume that your heart's not full of integrity. Friends, consider your works. Do they point to the true content of what is found inside of your hearts? There's a common phrase when it comes to integrity that everyone likes to quote, and it goes something like this. Integrity is doing what is right even when no one is watching. And that's true. When someone is alone, their actions often change. There's another definition that shows the other side of that, and the saying goes like this. Integrity is doing what is right even when everyone is watching. See, when someone's living in a fragmented way, when they're trying to conceal their true heart motivations and cover them with righteous deeds so that others won't see their hypocrisy, God has a way of revealing that. Think about Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." The Pharisees are being described in many ways to illustrate the point here. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and gotten a plate of food, and after you eat about half of the food, you discover that there is something stuck on the inside of the bowl that was not a part of your original meal? Do you know what I'm talking about? Does that not ruin the entire experience of eating at that restaurant? What's the most important part of running the dishroom in a dining establishment? 
It is to guarantee that the dishes are clean when they go out, right? What good is it if on Easter you pull out grandma's china, you polish off the outside of it, you make sure it's shiny and amazing, but you never wiped off last year's Thanksgiving from the inside of it? It's not any good. Or have you ever considered how beautiful some caskets are? They're shiny on the outside. They're pieces of mastery by a skilled craftsman, but inside they're full of a body that is in the natural process of decay. And you might think the casket is this beautiful thing, but in reality you wouldn't want to open it up. Now let's apply that to us today. It's really easy to spend all our spiritual energy on trying to polish the outside of the dish or put on another coat of stain on a box that contains a rotting corpse. How does that work? Well, we become like Christian robots. What do I mean by that? I put on my Sunday clothes. I polish my Sunday shoes. I part my hair just right. I carry my Sunday Bible. I put on my Sunday smile. I go to my Sunday school. I sit like a robot in church. I sing like a robot. I might even practice some of the proper positioning of my hands during worship time. But deep down inside, I, and probably those closest to you the rest of the week, can point out, know that I am still full of the vile filth of an unclean dish. Friend, are you defined as a person of integrity on the whole level or just the parts that others can see? Are you full of integrity or are you just an actor on display on Sundays? Now, there's some indicators of integrity. One of those indicators is our relationships will display our level of integrity. I want you to look at verses 3 through the first part of verse 5 of Psalm 15. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friends, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. I want you to look back at verse 3 here for a second. One marker of a person of integrity is how they use their mouth. In other words, a person of integrity does not gossip against others. What is gossip? Gossip is saying something about someone else, whether it's true or not, for the purpose of changing someone else's opinion about that other person. For instance, you could tell a gossip lie about Pastor Johnny. You could go to a person who loves cats and you could say to them, Pastor Johnny hates cats. That's not true. But if you said that to a cat lover, they would probably have some sort of changed opinions about me. They would no longer think I was perfect anymore, right? Like there would be a change in their opinion about me, right? Also, you could tell something that's really true. You could go tell someone that Pastor Johnny loves the Chicago Cubs. That's very true. I do love the Chicago Cubs. But spoken to a Cardinals fan and with the proper tone, it might result in them having an instant distrust of my judgments, right? Like you might do that. Now, normally gossiping is on topics much more important than my feelings on felines or my ability to care about a baseball team. How many times are we confronted with the opportunity to gossip? It happens all the time. Sometimes it doesn't even take words. Some of you may be at the point with your spouse or with a friend where you simply need to see someone, and by looking at your spouse or someone else with the right look, you can communicate a message of like, whoa, did you see that, right? Like, we're really good at this. A person of integrity avoids gossip. And I want to say this quickly because all of us are prone to gossip. 
All of us hate the sting of finding out that we were gossiped about. But I want you to remember this. If someone is willing to talk to you about someone else, I can almost guarantee you they're willing to talk about you to someone else. Gossip destroys. Be a person of integrity and put away gossip. What else does the person of integrity seek to avoid with their tongue? He doesn't seek to take sides and destroy those around them with their tongue. You ever see people who are so determined to be right that they will say cruel things against those who are in their way? You know what I'm talking about? Like, they're so determined to be right that they will destroy anybody who stands in their way. Like, have you ever seen a political debate, right? Or an NBA basketball game? Or a couple of teenagers trying to work out a disagreement, right? What happens? Or as adults, we get mad at someone at our job. And what happens? You begin to just tear down everybody, everything about that person and all around them. You want to destroy them. If you're a person of integrity, you're seeking to avoid tearing others down. and Instead, you're looking for ways to build them up with your words. And I want to tell you the contrast with people who are actively pursuing integrity is refreshing in their communication. Sure, they still handle conflict by speaking the truth with love. They don't avoid conflict, but they do it with love. So instead of attacking the person, they use their mouth to pursue peace with that person. Instead of being critical of those who are in authority, they regularly pray for them. Instead of seeking to destroy a perceived opponent, they look for opportunities to encourage them to do what is right by responding right to them. Now let's move on to verse 4 because here's some more markers for us to consider. Verse 4 can be a bit tricky, but it's helpful for us to understand the first two lines of this verse as contrasting each other. So these two verses are really in conjunction with each other. Here's what it says. They say this, "...in in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord." Now, the tricky part is the word reprobate. The reprobate is the one who is against God. That's someone that is opposed to God's way and even opposed to the character of God. The person is obviously not someone of integrity, all right? This is the person that is openly anti-God. The person of integrity despises those who despise God, but they honor those who fear God. That doesn't mean that they hate the reprobate or refuse to do good to them. No, not at all. We're called to love our enemy. But what this does mean is that a person of integrity holds highly the character of those who fear God and how they choose to live their life, and they don't view a person who despises God on the same level. They don't want to be like the person who hates God, but they most definitely want to imitate and be like the one who does fear God. So let me ask you this question. What kind of person do you want to be like? I recently asked a group of high school students to list some of the people that they looked up to and wanted to be like. I was expecting some great thinking and conversations about people of faith and conviction. Maybe Bible characters or godly teachers or a grandpa or a parent or a pastor. Instead, they list groups of people who have made millions of dollars off of promoting a very anti-God message to the world. And so I asked a follow-up question. Why did you choose this person? And here's what the responses were. Because he's rich, or he's attractive, or he's amazing at whatever it was. Parents, I want you to consider this. What kind of person do I want my kids to look up to? Are we finding our sources of inspiration from a reprobate who despises God by living in a way that's completely contrary to God's word, but because they're rich, famous, gorgeous, or funny, will overlook all of the ways that they are opposite of God? 
Or are we looking for people who are willing to take cultural hits in order to continue to live in a way that is pleasing to God? Point number four. Our stability in life is ultimately linked to our integrity. Our stability in life is linked to our integrity. Psalm 15, verse 5, He who does these things will never be shaken. What does it mean that a person of integrity will never be shaken? Here's what it means. No matter what comes your way, a person of integrity will continue to live their life in integrity. James 1, verses 2 through 4 says it this way. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In fact, for the person of integrity, they will recognize that the opportunities that these trials bring into their life will allow them the opportunity to become more like Christ. Let's go back to what we started our talk with today. Why do so many resolutions only last for a few weeks? Well, because the person wasn't ultimately changed to the core. They didn't change who they were. They just changed what they desired. So the person on the keto diet does great until somebody presents the Valentine's Day treat, right? Or the financial commitment to save X amount of dollars does great until all of a sudden something new that you want becomes something that you perceive that you need. The person of integrity, though, will stay true. They'll stay true to doing what? They'll be perfect or seeking to be perfect or without fault or free of blemish. And so when illness comes, they'll walk in the same way. When financial struggles come, they'll walk in the same way. When things are going well, they'll walk in the same way. When things are going poorly, they will walk in the same way. When relationships are falling apart, they will walk in the same way. I hope that this year you're able to keep your resolutions if you're making them. But I pray that regardless of what happens with your resolutions... This year you will be a person of integrity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture and just the reminder for us here as we transition into a new year and when we're doing a whole lot of thinking about what we want this year to look like. Lord, may the ultimate desire of our heart be to seek integrity and to be a person of integrity. Help us to desire to be holy like you are holy. And as a result of that, may it drive our decision-making, our, our processing, and in the way that we live our lives. And Lord, I just pray that you will help us to have a great year of glorifying you as we walk together as people of integrity. In your name, amen.